0: Uh, one slight correction to Josh's encouragement to go to the Creation Museum I want to emphasize that they first went to the Believers Bible Conference okay they first went to that and that was the beginning of their vacation it set the tone for the whole thing so I would strongly recommend that you that you uh, put that into your schedule but about 500 people And um, we had uh, uh, a good number of young people, somewhere around 200 in the evenings and they would meet with Brady Collier and Scott DeGroff and Micah Tuttle. And then uh, our sessions, main sessions with Mike Atwood and Paul Young and Brady Collier. And we had 21 different seminars. I think the only problem that we heard was there were too many seminars, what a problem. And so, uh, so we had a lovely time. Love to see you there. Saw many there from here and from L.A. Zion. In our times that we've been together the last several months, we've been talking about prayer. And in particular, when we talk about prayer, we've been looking at the Lord's Prayer. So if you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, I will read that. And then we're actually in our study to the very end of the prayer. And in the will of the Lord, in approximately 34 and a half minutes, we'll finish. I'm pretty sure it's not His will. No, just kidding. So let's pray, or let's uh, read together. Matthew chapter 6, reading in verse 9. In this manner, therefore, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. I grew up in St. Louis. Back in that day, every morning at 7 a.m. on uh, KMOX radio, with Jack Buck, they would read that prayer every morning. I grew up listening to it. Why did I do that? Because we didn't have a TV. We only had the radio. And uh, I, I remember it because... Um, I I began to memorize it from that time. It was about 40 years later that I actually did a study on this prayer. And you have been listening in to that study. Our Father and all the ramifications of calling him Father, the holiness that's reflected and hallowed be his name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, this exchange of will with heaven and how that which is in heaven can be brought to earth, the only way, I would add, that can be done. And, and, and how we talked about last time, this giving uh, this day, our daily bread, this sense of, of constant dependency and that he can be trusted to provide daily bread. But the, the necessity is for us to seek him daily not once every three days, or once every two days, or once when I feel like it, but fresh bread, fresh manna is needed every day. It is such a requirement. People ask me, they say, you know, how is it do I walk in the Spirit? You walk in the Word of God. And, and it, it, sometimes it's like going to the Word of God, and it's a basin full of water, and you just get your hands in that water, and you just Brush it, splash it all over your face. That's the, what you do with the Word of God. It's a great, it's a great analogy. And then he says, uh, "Forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors." And we we talked a little bit about parental forgiveness and covenant forgiveness and what forgiveness means. And we talked about, <coughs> excuse me, three principles that we could extract from this, and the the principle of spiritual health, our spiritual health and closeness with our Heavenly Father is, close, is very intimately tied to our health and the spiritual family. That The principle number two, that hidden sin destroys effective prayer. And principle number three, That when we forgive someone, it by necessity bespeaks of brokenness and contrition. And God has a tender spot for the brokenhearted and the contrite. He says, I'll never despise you. I'll always receive you. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. But in this one person I actually love to be with, it's the broken and contrite in heart. Those who tremble at my word. The the idea of forgiveness on this capacity bespeaks, announces a heart that has a, a real soft spot to the person of God himself. But tonight, we want to look at something else, and it's the next phrase in our study, and that simply is this phrase, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, at first glance, when you read that, That should make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. And if you don't have any hair on the back of your neck, it should make your your sweat glands pour out. What do you mean? Does God actually lead me into temptation and I have to ask Him not to lead Him into temptation? What do you mean? Is God that kind of God that would force me into a scenario in which He is purposely trying to pummel me and trip me up? That's the claim a false claim against God, that God is, is um, sort of uh, uh, passive-aggressive with our, our Christian lives and you can't be trusted, that would be a lie. You see, the misconception is that the Father is the one who leads us into temptation. That's actually not true. And the second misconception is that uh, 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 he, he leads us into temptation knowing The sin nature that we were born with. Like he's setting us up to fail. Those are two misconceptions. And I want to be clear as we define what this is not saying at the beginning of our discussion. I want to be clear. God does not lead you into into temptation. Now for the sake of clarity, turn to James chapter 1 and verse 13. I am purposely defending the character of God this evening. I'm purposely pointing out how that misconception and indictable offense to God is actually unfounded and a, and a lie. It's one that Satan would want you to believe. In James chapter 1 and verse 13, let's read it carefully. Let no one say, how many people can say it? No one. When he is tempted, this is a word for testing. In this case, it's a negative connotation. That I am tempted by God. Let no one say that. It is not true. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and here it is. Nor does He Himself tempt anyone. God doesn't play like that. God does not lead. The Father does not lead. Is the one, is not the one who leads us into temptation. So where does this temptation come from? Where do we get this draw to sin? Well, look at verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires. And those own desires have a way of enticing you. They're like bait on a hook, and that's the imagery of the Greek. They're like bait on a hook, and the little fish is swimming around, and he, and he, and he goes for that, that, that scrumptious little bait, that worm, and there's a hook in it. And when you put your mouth on that hook, you're now caught, and it pulls you up to the surface. Many of you are experts at that. I like to think I'm an expert at it, but I don't catch a thing. And when that desire is conceived, it brings birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. He speaks in terminology of the life cycle of the human condition, and what he's saying is, I don't tempt anyone, so uh, you should understand, you're tempted because your nature of sin. Now, the Lord Jesus captured the same thought. You don't need to turn there. It's in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 19, where he says, out of the heart... Proceed evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and fornications and thefts and false witness and blasphemies. He's saying, listen, all that comes internally. That's what defiles a man. It's not what you eat in. It's what comes out. The disciples are kind of mystified by that. That's why he explained it this way. So let's be very, very clear. This text in Matthew chapter 6 is not saying God tempts you then what is it saying? Well, that's a good question. I want to focus your attention, go back to Matthew 6 and verse 13, I want to focus your attention on a very small three-letter word in the text. This very small three-letter word in the text begins with a B and ends with a T. But, now that conjunction is the key word of this verse. Everything hinges on that word. So you have to understand it this way. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now that implies very strongly so that this temptation is from the evil one. It, it, it's the key to understanding the thrust of what he's saying. And what he's saying is that there is a tremendous spiritual warfare that, that looms over the Christian And that tremendous spiritual warfare is that the enemy is looking to entice by by tantalizing you, tempt you by tantalizing the nature of sin which was put to death at the cross but yet still has influence if surrendered to it. And the enemy knows that. And so he dangles that out in front of you, your favorite little temptations. We all have them, and the enemy is trying to bring you in. And then the scriptures, which we'll talk about, mentions this as a snare, catching you like a, a trap for an animal that closes its pointed teeth upon the limb of an animal. That's what that's the imagery that's being um, uh, indicated. Lead us not into temptation, as if God didn't know. It's the temptation that comes from the enemy. Deliver us from the evil one. That's what he's doing. He's, he's trying to foil you. Now, the reason why I mention this is because, generally speaking, we have sort of a anemic, dehydrated understanding of the unseen world. It, it's, it's difficult for us to conceptualize in Western culture and some of the cultures of the world where... Uh, demonic influence is strong and powerful it's a little easier to identify but the scripture has certain things that indicate a tremendous interplay in the unseen world now my favorite text on this begins with job and i want you to turn to job i want you to turn to job chapter one and i want you to see we're just going to talk about the unseen world for a moment The reason why I must do this is because these last two verses of this prayer, this instructional prayer, is designed to show us the unseen world. Excuse me. And so in Job chapter 1 and verse 6, we'll get a a little opportunity to peer into this scenario. Look at what it says in verse 6. Now, there was a day. That indicates that it could be any day. But there was a day, unspecified, when the sons of God... Now, what is the sons of God? The sons of God is a common expression in the Old Testament. Now, we won't have time to prove it to you, but that expression actually has reference to angelic beings. Now, in the angelic beings, there are two, those who are non-fallen and those who are fallen. Now, where do we get that? We get that out of Revelation, right? We also get it out of Isaiah. We get it out of Ezekiel. But those who are fallen and those who are unfallen, those are the sons of God. And, and, this, and it, by the way, that same expression is used in the book of Psalms, and it indicates there is both parties involved, the unseen world. The sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. Now, what's amazing here is the accessibility that Satan, who was thrown out of heaven, cast down as a lightning bolt, as Jesus said, has accessibility to the presence of the Lord. Now, you'll say, well, that doesn't seem like that works, but we'll read another passage in just a minute that actually shows that very thing, this accessibility before God. And it says this, that the Lord said to Satan, now I would Never think the Lord would have another conversation with Lucifer ever again. But they did. Do you remember the temptations? There was a little bit of conversation going on there, and I wasn't there. Why why would it be abnormal? It's very normal. Remember, sovereign God is even sovereign over that which would be rebellious in his creation. And so he says, so the Lord said to Satan, from where did you come from? I always thought that was a funny question. Like the Lord didn't know. Where'd you go? Hey, I know. And he says this. He says, so Satan answered the, and the Lord said, from going to and fro on the earth. Whoa, 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 whoa wait, 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 wait. Do you mean that Satan can kind of enter in the domain of physicality and shape and size at will? Yeah. The, the Lord Jesus said that this world... The, the, the ruler of this world has now come. He was referring to Satan and that this is his tainted, stolen property from God. It says, going to and fro on the earth from the world and walking back and forth on it. Notice the sense of his movement between nations and lands and property and, and homes and lives. And then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Now that's interesting because it would seem to imply that even Satan had a little visit to the home of Job. How do I know that? Because Satan responded as if he said, "Yeah, I have considered Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Now, at first it sounds as if Satan's trying to dupe the Lord. Yeah, you you know, why don't you let him in my He's trying to, like, get the Lord to maybe compromise. And he says, No, 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 no. Job only fears you because you have your hedge about him. You've protected him. You take that away, mark my words, Job's folding, and he's going he's gonna to curse you. Now, the purpose is not to discuss the content of the conversation. The purpose is to highlight the unique interplay and in the unseen world, that this is happening, and you don't know it. Now, the question is, have you ever wondered if that conversation happened about, has happened about you? I don't know, I don't think I make enough dent in the things of the unseen world to get noticed. (laughs) But mark my words, there is a tremendous amount of unseen world activity about you and me. Turn over, 1 Kings chapter 22. Now this, of course, is many, many years after. The incident with Job, and I say I mentioned that timeline simply to point out that this discussion in the unseen world was not just a one and done thing. Now we move forward perhaps somewhere around a thousand plus years, and we find a unique conversation in 1 Kings chapter 22. Now let me set the stage for you. Um, Ahab was on the throne in the northern kingdom, and he went to a relative by marriage named King Jehoshaphat, who was in the south. Now, I have no idea why King Jehoshaphat wanted his offspring to marry the offspring of of, uh, Ahab and Jezebel. Perhaps it was a, a play to bring the kingdom together. Perhaps it was meant for peace. Perhaps it was meant for economic trade benefit. But you just don't do that yet Jehoshaphat did. And so Jehoshaphat goes to visit his in-laws. So he goes up to Samaria and while they're having a little feast, Oh, Ahab says, Hey, Joe, what do you say? We go over to Ramoth Gilead and we like, you know, take it. what do you say? You want to help me? They have this conversation. Now, what are you going to say? Your in-law asks you to go, basically take someone out. You say, "Well, no, I'm kind of busy this afternoon. I got to get home. You know, we have the lamb to roast." No, They'll do that. He goes, "Well, oh, oh okay. Uh, can we ask a prophet of God about it?" Now Ahab answers. Oh, we got prophets, and they all bring uh, they bring in the prophets, and they and they say, "Oh, yeah, go. You'll be successful." And notice my words. Hey, Jehoshaphat asked for a prophet of God. King Ahab said, we got prophets. Left off the of God part. So Joe Joe says, would you have any prophets of the Lord? Well, we got one. Here's Ahab. I just love this guy. We got one, but I don't like talking to him. Every time I talk, he always says something mean about me. I always thought Ahab was kind of a spineless guy, you know. And Joe says, well, well, I want to hear from him. His name is hard to pronounce. It's Micaiah, and, and so they bring him in. And before he gets there, one of, one of Ahab's guys says, now listen, buddy, you tell the king the right stuff because everybody else has agreed. So you, you, you get in line, okay? You hear what I'm saying, buddy? So Micaiah goes before Ahab and Ahab, tell us what the Lord has said. This is Micaiah. Go to Ramoth, Gilead. You're going to win. Have a nice day. Ahab goes, "See? I told you. He never tells me what I want to hear. He just told Tell me the truth." So Micaiah says, "Listen. This is what really went down. Turn to verse 19 of 1 Kings chapter 22. And it says the following. Then Micaiah said, "Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne." Oh, that would be in heaven. And all the host of heaven standing by on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will persuade Ahab to go up that he may fall at Remoth-Gilead, that he might be executed, he might die in battle? So one spoke in this manner and another spoke in that manner. Then a spirit came forward. Now the question is, What kind of spirit was this? And stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. The Lord said to him, in what way? And so the spirit said, this angelic means said, I will go out and be a lying spirit. In the mouth of all his prophets. And the Lord said, you shall persuade him and also prevail. Go out and do so. Whoa, wow, this is amazing. This is one of the most unique uh, uh, um, look into the unseen world that we have on on the biblical record. And there's God, almost like the sons of uh, God coming to present themselves. And he's on his throne. And there's this accessibility The angelic beings, I think the unfallen ones are there, and it appears that there is fallen angelic beings that had access because the this, this spirit was going to produce a lying a message. And as far as I know, that's going to be of a fallen spirit. And so you have this. I'll go and I'll put. I'll bring this kind of persuasive um, uh, thought into each of the prophets, and they'll they'll just say a lie to convince Ahab to go. And the Lord said, "We'll do that." And what Micaiah is saying, he's saying, and that's what you're hearing right now. All your prophets around you—they're telling you lies because it was engineered in a place that you can't see in the unseen world. Do you see this interplay, this absolute spiritual um, uh, interaction that we are on? Un- uh, that we normally are unfamiliar with that is beyond our physical eyesight. Now this is important. It, Luke chapter 22, don't turn to this one. It was when Peter proclaimed his, his, um, uh, dying, his uh, uh, dying loyalty to the Lord Jesus and he said, and he said I'll go, to you, go with you to the end. And the Lord Jesus said, Peter, you don't understand. Satan is already asked to sift you like wheat. He wants to dismantle you. And I have prayed for you. Unseen world. It's kind of scary. And this verse in Matthew chapter 6, turning back there now, actually hints at this unseen world kind of battle. And, and when the Lord Jesus asks us to remember it and to model prayer, he's basically saying you need to know something. You need to know that there is a tremendous amount of spiritual warfare that goes on, and it's through prayer that spiritual warfare is actually seen to be victorious, that the battle is won, that the will of God is brought down from heaven, that Satan's strategic scheming does not actually not happen happen through prayer now this is why one of the huge reasons why we pray and why we pray that the lord would would put a, a hedge of protection around of an individual why the lord would restrain the enemy why the lord would not cause distraction now i'm going to tell you a little story that illustrates this from my personal life at camp for many years at turkey hill I would take young men to preach at camp. And I, I would have them preach the gospel in the morning and I would teach in the evening. And I was very concerned about the spiritual warfare that we would encounter at camp. And so one, uh, I, uh, over, this, over the years that I was doing that, I began to pray three times a day, an hour a time, with the, my co-worker, the guy I was training. Where did I get three times a day? Daniel. That's where I got that. And so uh, in the morning, we had time of prayer, and and now my coworker, my young man friend, was going to preach. And we decided to take the teenagers down to the amphitheater, which is down by the lake at Turkey Hill Ranch Bible Camp. And uh, as we were going down the hill, I noticed, and these are all teenagers, that this gigantic bumblebee went right by my ear. It sounded like a freight train, and then I watched it bounce from head to head to head to head and then dart around and come back around. Now, you got a bunch of like crazy hormonal teenagers who are prone to overreact, and that little bumblebee lands on somebody's head. How long do you think it would take to disperse the crowd? And so I said, "Lord, please take away the bumblebee." And I no more said the period to my sentence when that little bee went zoom. And I literally went, it was gone. Never saw it again. So, we sit down. And we're all down there. And, and uh, the um, sun began to come out. And we're out in the open air, the open sun on the, on the side of a hill. And it, it starts to get get really hot and I noticed the young people start to squirm and you know try to cover their heads and you know when that happens you, they're not going to pay attention so I felt a little bit like Joshua and I said Lord I need you to take away the sun and I no more said the period to that sentence when all of a sudden this cloud went spiritual warfare And all of a sudden, I saw the young people kind of sit up straight. And then, this cool breeze came right off the lake. I go, no way. Brother Caleb Trent, he was there at the Believer's Bible Conference. He's preaching the gospel. And I noticed that all these flies began to drop on people's shoulders. And you would start people see people going like this and you know, like that. And I go, Lord, I need you to take away the flies. Now I didn't yell it. I said it to myself. And it's no longer sooner than I put the period on that sentence that they just vanished. And literally no one was waving their hands in the air. Now, you can tell me that that was just some natural phenomenon that you can explain by the laws of ecology and physics and, and, and um, bugs. But I don't believe you. Because I prayed and my God answered and protected the integrity of communication of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. He's a roaring lion and he wants to devour and he wants to chew and he wants to spit out and he wants to disrupt and cause chaos and confusion and mess up the communication of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how is it that we, as little tiny creatures on this planet, can actually see, can actually wield a sword against such a mighty foe? It's through the person of Jesus Christ, his victory, and the prayers that he obligates himself to answer. And make no mistake, every person in here has a huge target on your spiritual chest. And the enemy puts that target in his crosshairs. How are you going to defend yourself? How are you going to keep out of harm's way? I'll read it to you again. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, Let's just take a moment to think about this. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. I want to expand this concept because we don't really think about the evil one and how he wants to dismantle a life. And I want to show you some texts in the word of God that illustrate some of the ruthlessness of the enemy. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 25. For those brothers of mine, the ones that come to our discipleship class, I believe you're all here this evening I would like you to remember and memorize, beginning in verse uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 23 through 26. Those verses have saved me so many times when I wanted to get into an argument. And this is what it says. Avoid foolish and ignorant disputes. Well that saved me. I'm in all these meetings with other Christian brothers and I disagree with them like you wouldn't believe. And this verse is like a ticker tape on the Wall Street going right past my eyeballs. No foolish or ignorant disputes. I don't think it's ignorant, Lord. It's ignorant. Knock it off. And it goes like this. Knowing that they generate strife. That's how you know that what they are because they don't produce peace. And then he says, and the servant of the Lord must not quarrel. I'm a good quarreler. I win debates. I argue my case. I could be a lawyer, although I don't like them, right? Be gentle to all. Gentle to all, that's the last thing you do when you're a good quarreler. Able to teach patient and and humility. Humility, that's the last thing you want to have in a debate. Correcting those who are in opposition. Now listen to this. If God perhaps will grant them repentance, God is dealing with a situation and they're not arguing against you, they're arguing against God and God would grant them a change in their mind so that they may know the truth. That's what they don't know. That's what they're fighting against. Listen to this. That they may come to their senses. They are spiritually out of their mind. That's what that phrase means. And escape the snare of the devil. You mean that that person that I might be arguing with is really espousing propaganda from the enemy himself? The enemy is, is using him as if he is a puppet in the, in the grand scheme of his plan, and he's caught and he can't escape? Well, that's exactly what I'm saying. And what does the enemy doing with him? Read the last phrase. Taken captive to do his will. We rarely think how that can actually happen to a person. But according to Paul, in his, one of his last letters to Timothy, he says it not only happens, it is something you need to know about. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Turn to Acts chapter 5. In my opinion, it appears that Ananias and Sapphira, who are the subject matter of the first half of chapter 5 of Acts, were born-again believers, (coughs) and it appears that Satan put it in their heart to lie. Let's read it, and it says, beginning in verse 1, a certain man named Ananias with with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. They kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. As you know, it was not wrong to hold some back. It was wrong was to, hold, uh, to lie about it as if to say, this is, we sold it for this full price. Now notice verse 3. Peter sees through this charade, and Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? To the Holy Spirit. Is it possible for a Christian to become a weapon of Satan? Is it possible for Satan to so influence and confuse a believer that he actually becomes a tool, a weapon, a rifle, a sword in the hand of the enemy? Yes. That's exactly what's going on. Now, there are a few people in the, in the New Testament also that illustrate this. You don't need to turn to it. But Hymenaeus and Alexander was, was delivered over to Satan that they may, may, may learn not to blasphemy. That's in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And as you know, in the discipline chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and Paul says this, deliver such a one over to Satan that he might be taught not to sin for the destruction of the flesh. In other words, Satan's involvement can be due to man's choices. And that's all part of this unseen world event. Now, I tell you this because we face a tremendous foe. And the tremendous foe wants not just a piece of you, but all of you. And the only way, at first glance, that would cause a great amount of fear, and and, and we would not be able to handle it, and yet the Lord God has seen fit to put things in his word to comfort you. 1 Corinthians ten thirteen, God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to bear. He won't let you go past your limits of capacity and the temptation process. No, 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 no. But he will always, he will always, I'll say it again, he will always provide a way of escape but with temptation will also make the way of escape and therefore always give you success that you may be able to bear it. That means endure or withstand the temptation. He gives you exceeding precious promises whereby you might be partakers of the divine nature. And in Hebrews, he says the same thing. He says this, uh, we have a, a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, but he was tempted in all points as we were tempted yet without sin. Why? So we can come boldly to the throne of grace and obtain mercy and and find grace in the time of need. What's the time of need? The temptation. You see that? This spiritual warfare is not a death ticket for us. It's not a stamp of the final event for us. This is not a a note that you're going to lose. This is actually a prayer that highlights the tremendous promises of God's word, and all that God, all Jesus is saying is, "Ask for it, ask for it, seek my throne of grace, obtain mercy, find that grace, and it will be." And the text, and the, the interesting thing about this text in the Greek is, it says this in the nick of time, in the nick of time, and finally. There are three members of the Godhead. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Two of the three are on record in the word of God to be making intercession for you. I don't know. It was the Lord Jesus who prayed for Peter and then he says, and when... You've gone through that experience. Return to me. And guess what Peter did? Return to him. How many prayers do you think the Lord Jesus echoes to heaven before the throne that go unanswered? Let me think. Zero. How many prayers do the Spirit of God makes on your behalf with groanings which cannot be uttered that go unanswered? How many? Zero. He has a 100% answer rate. I'm thinking, I'm thinking we have everything necessary by the promises of God's word to see the prayer, instructional prayer of Jesus Christ be fulfilled and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, we are done out of time And I would love to tell you the last verse of the passage, which is, um, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. But I think that would take about another 45 minutes. (laughs) So I'll just have to come back and we'll do it again. Please understand the purpose of going through such prayer is to pray. It's to pray. Yesterday, in closing, I was talking with the six brothers that we have this discipleship class for. I, I actually don't, don't tell them, but I really love it. I just love it. And We were at the table at the restaurant. That's the part I really love, you know. And we're at the restaurant, and we're talking about how God has led us. They told me something I didn't know. They said, Steve, there was a point there about four or five years ago in which the elders were, were encouraging us to seek to be trained in some way and we didn't know what to do and we had contacted several other brothers but none of them responded and, and, and then we met you at Yosemite and, and you explained something to us and then you, and then we agreed to pray and we prayed for one year before we did anything and usually every month i would call these men and we would have a little group prayer on the phone or by video chat and as we prayed we asked the lord we ended up we realized we needed the lord to do six things in order for a discipleship work to happen now these were not like we need you to change the color of paint in the room or you know we need a, a something very trivial these were big things Let me tell you what those were. We prayed that you would have more elders. Let me think. Oh, you have more elders. We prayed that you would have more deacons. Let me think. You have more deacons. We prayed that I would have a job change. That happened too. We prayed that Justin would have the contract that he would need to, to float his business during this process. That happened too. I believe we prayed for Davey to have a change in his job so that he could be part of this process. That happened too. What was number six? I needed a conference to change. It was a conflict. You, I couldn't come on the proposed date I couldn't change the conference, so I, I emailed Mr. David Dixon. And he said, oh, I forgot to tell you. That date, we already had something previously scheduled. It wouldn't work for us anyway. Six things. We prayed specifically about it. We were talking about this at the table yesterday. And, and we said, we saw God do those six things. We knew if we didn't do the discipleship program." We would be sinning. That is a real testimony of why we pray. I encourage you to. I encourage you to pray as husband and wife. I encourage you to pray as father and son. I encourage you to meet to pray as regularly and pour out your heart to God. And if you have trouble starting to pray, you break open that book called the Bible and you just go ahead and pick a portion and read it like the Psalms or John chapters 13 through 17. And you can't go 10 minutes without breaking out into prayer. And you align yourself with what the scripture says and you will find that the fellowship you have now, which is tremendous, will be even more rich because you labored in prayer and watched God answer it together. And that's why we have such a close relationship in our discipleship program. So these brothers said, well, Steve, let's pray again. And let's ask the Lord to do another work, maybe a phase two. And we got back from lunch, which was really a good lunch at Scott and Millie's. We never have a bad lunch there. It's always fantastic. And the first thing we did when we got back is we prayed. Lord, what would you have us do next? I am so confident that the Lord will answer that. I look forward to what he'll do next. Please, let's pray. My father, your son is just really, really good at all that he is and does. Your Holy Spirit is is amazing at bringing things together in just the perfect way. And you, O Father, you, your your loving kindness, your attentiveness, your sensitivity, your graciousness, your mercy overwhelms us. We can't can't even take it in and, and it's just a small portion that we absorb. We just want to say to you, perhaps the most important part of prayer life. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, Father, thank you for blessing us. Thank you for blessing this assembly. Thank you for blessing the discipleship work. Thank you for blessing our home meetings. Thank you for blessing our families. Thank you for bringing ones together and encouraging souls that needed encouragement and strengthening those who needed strengthening. Thank you, Father, for being the shepherd that you are. Thank you, a thousand upon thousand thank yous for that precious son of yours who paid with his life on the cross for mine. We thank you in Jesus' name.